if you're a real purchaser and you're a real client and we're looking at a five, 10, $15 million asset, I want you to spend some time up front underwriting a lot of deals with me so I can understand your criteria, how you're modeling projects, and we're getting all of our yellow lights taken up front. And I also want you to come into town. You are tuned in to Multifamily Mondays, the informal podcast designed to simplify and help others succeed at apartment investing. With that being said, let's dive in. Welcome back to another episode of Multifamily Mondays. As you guys know, I'm your host, Roderick Jones, and I'm excited that you are here for another golden nugget dropping episode. Today, we have a very special guest. He's a multifamily broker. But before we dive into that, let's hear from this week's sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by A Party Fund. A Party Fund is a boutique capital advisory firm that does everything in their power to help you find the right funding for your multifamily projects. With their experience, expertise, and passion, they are the perfect partner in the multifamily space for all your debt and equity needs. To see how you can get your deals funded, visit www.apartyfund.com. That's A-P-A-R-T-I-F-U-N-D.com and see how you can get your deals funded today. Now, let's dive back into the episode. Okay, so let's go ahead and dive right into today's guest. Today on the show, we have a real estate investor, developer, and agent who has found his niche in the industry, acting as an investment property specialist and actually representing buyers instead of sellers in the transaction process. He has also completed multiple joint venture projects equity partnerships, and he works as a developer. Completing over 120 transactions in less than a year, he has found a process and relies on that process to guide his most profitable deal-producing activities. He is a husband and a father to a brand new baby girl. Today's guest is located in Kansas City, Missouri, and can be found at livefreeinvestments.com. Let's welcome Logan Freeman to the Multifamily Mondays show how are you doing today doing phenomenal like i always say energized thriving and focused today i like that energized thriving and focused and you gotta be be in this world correct correct okay so let's let's go ahead and dive straight into the meat and potatoes here how my favorite dishes (laughs) so how exactly did you get started in the multifamily space and what made you dive in yeah you know i had the you know i had the the great i guess what i'll say uh, opportunity to learn from a, a very sophisticated uh, group of investors and represented them uh in kansas city on purchasing their assets and you know i i got into the multifamily space for two reasons one i've been taught and mentored my whole life to to level up and, and always be thinking bigger. And mm-hmm. uh, so that was one of the reasons that I got into the multifamily space. And the second was, you know, in, in my market where I'm at, you know, the barrier of entry is higher for uh, larger asset classes. And, 
more sophisticated deals or you know even even niche product that i'll that i'll call and so mm-hmm. you know i was thinking about this and every investor can go buy a single family home right i mean that's mm-hmm. not a that's not a you know that's not a bad assumption i would say and the barrier of entry to go buy a single family home put 20% down use a conventional loan that's not hard well if any of your listeners have read MJ DeMarco's book, The Millionaire's Fast Lane. He has five commandments of business. And one of them is that the barrier of entry needs to be very high or at least higher where you you play with a a whole lot less competition. And so I knew commercial and multifamily was a little more difficult to figure out. There were more unknowns in relation to how one person might be able to take down a 50, 100, 150 unit building. And so I wanted to go figure that piece out. And then the financing also is a little bit more sophisticated and it takes a little bit different uh, level of investor or clientele to take that down. So the way I got interested in, in started in, in multifamily was just taking action. I hired a mentor and a coach. I'm sure a lot of your listeners know him. His name is Michael Blanc and he's a big apartment investor himself and syndicator mm-hmm. in the space. I hired him to underwrite, help me underwrite a lot of different projects. I uh, just mm-hmm. went through the whole process. So uh, that's how I got started. And then I went out and I started networking my tail off in the Kansas City space and flying around to different events. Uh, and learning about this wor- world of syndication and uh, mm-hmm. came back to Kansas City with my new newfound knowledge and, and honestly, what I'll say, uh, naivety. I was very mm-hmm. naive thinking I was going to come back and, and use my investors' money and go syndicate deals. And what I learned very quickly was uh, if your broker is, is sending a property out, it's probably not the best property to try to go syndicate. That's not all always the 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 case. However, uh, I needed a new deal deal flow source, so I moved my license. I'm a, I'm a real estate uh, broker here in Kansas City. I moved my license over to a commercial and multifamily space. Partnered mm-hmm. up with some people who own outright themselves over 700 units, and I started to put myself around these individuals who knew uh, a whole lot more about what I was trying to do. And uh, you know, a couple syndications later, and and a lot of um, what I'll call brokerage on, on multifamily and commercial, uh, I'm, I'm here today. So I guess that's probably a roundabout way to say how I got involved. Okay, cool. So you said a lot there. And what I want to go back and break down is, so you were, so you're a licensed agent and you're working on the single family side yes. and then you transitioned from, you know, brokering single family deals to brokering commercial and multifamily deals. Yep. How was that transition and was it a instant shift or did it take you a while to, to really wrap your head around, you know, the shift from single family broker into multifamily broker or commercial? Yeah, it's a great question. Great question. And honestly, it didn't take me very long because I never I never represented any re- what I'll call retail clients. I represented a 40 million dollar fund that was mm-hmm. that was buying properties in Kansas City and we were not buying houses we were buying income streams and that's that's how i've always looked at real estate and so uh, the shift uh, just took more knowledge and more skill and more reps but the whole part of of buying all of those single family homes and there was some apartment complexes in there too duplexes fourplexes and then 10 to 50 units so i did have some experience in doing that Uh, it didn't take me a whole lot longer to to really get my head wrapped around that piece because 
Uh, two reasons. One, I never did retail single family homes for, for residential people that were just buying and selling their, their personal residences. And mm-hmm. then two, I, I put myself around individuals who had 15 plus years of experience doing exactly what I wanted to do. And I've always been taught that you're the, the sum of the the five people that you spend the most time with. And so I really started spending a lot of time with these individuals and their knowledge just continue and their experience continued to rub off on me. Right. Okay. All right. So you, you're in the Kansas city market and the reason that this is so, this is, this is an interesting show because you can talk about it from both perspectives. You can talk about it from brokering deals and you can talk about it from investing in deals. Absolutely. And so uh, let's dive into looking at it from a broker's perspective, and then we're going to wrap back around to looking at it from an investor's perspective. Okay. Okay. So in the, well, let's dive, let's go to buying. So let's say you have a buyer. What exactly do, do brokers look for in a buyer to award them a deal? So let's say I'm a new guy and I'm looking to put together a deal. How can, you know, someone who's never put together a deal win a deal or, you know, talk to the brokers to have them, you know, put their best foot forward or take a deal down or have the brokers feel confident in them to award them the deal? This is a great question and one that I believe comes up quite a bit. I have five points that I'd like to cover for your listeners and Mm -hmm. we can dive into them a little more in detail with each one. You just tell me when you want to stop on something. So, you know, I think the first Point that when you're an out-of-state investor or even you're in-state and you are working with a broker, you need to have what I'll say is clear expectations. So let me let me dive into what that actually means. So mm-hmm. what you might need to do your due diligence documents, what are your buying criteria? How are you going to qualify yourself to that to that broker? You know, and the seller. So in today's competitive landscape it's very important for you to work with your broker and they need to know you and have a relationship so they feel comfortable whenever there's a multiple bid situation on selling your strengths and your ability to perform on the contract that you've you've put in front of them and so having those clear expectations you know up front and seeing if there's even an opportunity to collaborate i'll give an example of this is mm-hmm. you know i might have a very qualified buyer group that is asking me to find them an asset or multiple properties so like one just came through my email logan we'd like to acquire 1000 units in kansas city you know mm-hmm. i think an inexperienced broker would get or agent would get really excited when they get that email me my skepticism goes up Right. Because if yeah. you've done any studying about today's landscape and understand Kansas City's market, going out and trying to acquire a thousand units is going to be difficult. Right. I mean, there's mm-hmm. just not that many large properties where we're at. So that's my first question I'm thinking through. Second right. is, let me ask you what your investment criteria actually are, because. Mm-hmm. And we need to we need to understand that up front. Is it true value add, meaning you're going to go in and put in twenty twenty five thousand dollars a door, or if, is it light value add, where we might be talking five to ten, or is it a management play, where we can actually come in and put professional management in? So, I think just having really clear expectations and not just jumping into a relationship is really really important to the broker and buyer relationship. So that's my first one. Okay. All right. So let's 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 dive into that first one a little bit more. I got a question for you. Mm-hmm. So clear expectations. 
Um, a lot of guys hit me up and they say, hey, you told me to go and talk to the brokers. And I went to talk to the broker, but the first thing they asked me for was uh, proof of funds and it is it's it's proof of funds they always say they ask me for proof of funds up front right how is so what is that is that the mechanism to weed out like the inexperience from the experience or how how do you know how do you know when to ask for proof of funds up front or how do you know when you know how does it normally you know work yeah that's a great question that's actually my second point roderick so we'll jump okay. into that all is, right cool is track record right so you know, a, a really high level broker who's finding off market properties is going to always ask some type of qualification questions. And these qualification questions might be, hey, do you have proof of funds or what is your what does your project list look like? What have you completed in the past? How long have you been investing in real estate? Is this your first purchase? Do you have a financing plan? What's your capital stack? look like what's your mm -hmm. business plan what do you what's your exit strategy so i think that you know i the way that i look at it i can see both both realms right because whenever i'm working with a group those are the questions that i'm asking for somebody so two points of advice here the first one being if you don't have a track record and you don't have uh, any type of project list that you can share. It might make sense for you to find somebody that does and do something for them that they don't want to do. So this mm -hmm. is exactly how I got into uh, commercial and multifamily real estate, right? The, the group that I was working with, they had the track record. They owned a lot of units, but they were having tr trouble finding yielding properties. So mm -hmm. I went out and I started making cold calls. I would make cold calls on a lot of different multifamily properties and a lot of different asset types. And lo and behold, I ran into and an unique asset type that my group that I'm now working with was actually interested. So what did I do for them? I brought them value. And the second mm -hmm. one is, you know, I, I think some people too want to start by jumping from steps one, two, and three, all the way to steps four and five, doing a 50 unit apartment complex. If you are true, truly excited and want to learn the syndication business, you know, there's, there's people that you can work with and you can actually you know, I, I would say get mentored by, but also invest with. And so mm -hmm. if you have some type of retirement account, learn about self-directed IRAs, learn about these different things, and they can call you, Roderick, and you can say, look, you know, I'd love to be able to showcase how we do this, the process, you, you know, and maybe some point you could be uh, a part of our team on building relationships for us or doing some other piece of the puzzle. So, you know, my, my advice to people who don't have a track record, it might be a little bit different in the sense of, I'm not saying that you should not go try to find the project. But what I'm saying from the broker side is that you're probably not going to get the off-market true properties because they have a very strong list of people that they've worked with in the past. And mm -hmm. so you need to do everything that you can to showcase your group or your skills you know, that, that, that you're going to actually be able to perform. And if you can't, fine, go do a smaller project yourself, get that under your belt and continue to level up. You know, real estate is not a get rich 
fast scheme. It's a get rich slow scheme. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. over time. And so it's more of a mentality thing for me. So, you know, I think that's my advice to people who are talking to brokers. I think you should absolutely talk to them. Start trying to add value to them and also underwrite their deals. Whenever you get a deal sent to you from a broker, get on their list. You'll get all the stuff from them mm-hmm. and just start underwriting their deals. And when you underwrite their deals, send feedback back. Some of the best clients that I have, the way we started our relationship was that they actually would, the deals that I would be sending out to them, they would send back, Logan, appreciate you sending me that feed or that, that opportunity. And here's why it's not going to work for our modeling and our structure. Boom, 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 boom. Now I'm like, okay, this individual just took the time to sit down, to put it into their model look at the details of the project, ask me some questions. And now they, I understand a little bit better on why they are actually not interested in this project. And I can understand that what they might be interested in going forward. So it's a little bit of give and take there. Right. So whether it's good or bad, still send feedback to the broker. 100%. I have closed more projects, Roderick, by taking my investors feedback that passed taking that to the seller saying, Hey, you know, we've got a lot of feedback. Here's what it is. And maybe here's how we remedy this. And, and if you can potentially uh, say there might be a, a repair for the roof, you know, a concession for the roof that might be able to get more buyers interested already knowing that you're going to repair this, you know, or mm-hmm. let's go take care of these items and keep the price the same because that's, what's killing these, these offers is they know they're going to have to put, you know, $150,000 into this property right off the bat because they're looking at something. Let's take care of that some way creatively. Let's keep the price the same and then let's go out and find your buyer. So I've used that feedback from other buyers and taking it to sellers and actually had them kind of shift there. So brokers love feedback. We love to hear what people are passing on and why. Wow. Okay. That is dope. That is dope. Um, because I know a lot of people say they don't want to give negative feedback. They only want to give positive feedback, but yeah. from the broker's perspective, all feedback is positive feedback because it helps it's- you guys get better at sending deals for the future. hundred percent agree in the real players and hitters in the space, they don't, they don't get their feelings hurt. They would not be in the top 1% or 10% of the brokers in that city if they got their feelings hurt for every deal that they had. They understand it. They get it. They take that feedback back to their sellers. They have a crucial conversation with them, and they make their offering better. Okay. All right. So we have, number one, clear expectations. Number two, you look at the track record. What is the third? The third is communication. So, you know, in life, what I've found to be really, really helpful is a few different skills that translate over every single industry, job, profession, whatever that is. One is emotional intelligence and two is communication. So having communication up front, and I have a great story that I'd love to tell you about one of the times where I jumped into a project with a buyer from that was out of state, not you know, from a referral, actually a trusted resource. And I still have that referral source and we're still, we're still really good friends. Um, mm-hmm. But we didn't, I, I didn't take that same sales approach and sales process approach that I do with my other buyers because I overlooked uh, a few things because it was a referral. So having clear communication is very, very important. And I'll talk about this. And what I mean by communication is what is your, what is your structure? Will you be syndicating? 
what what is it that you're going to be looking for during the due diligence phase? So I, I had a listing out mm-hmm. in a tertiary market is a 32 unit listing for about $850,000. So it was in one of the, the, the areas that has a, an air force base uh, in, in and around Kansas city. But mm-hmm. long story short, we had a, a buyer fly in, was very interested, put the property under contract. I was under the assumption that that individual was purchasing that property himself. So I never asked what his structure was, where the money was going to be coming from, because he said that he had a long track record. I saw some projects that he had done. So I just assumed that he had a very strong balance sheet himself, and I did not ask what his structure was. Well, when it came down to it, we get through inspections. Everything's good. Um, We're working through what he believes the after repair value is going to be, and the rents are going to, what we're going to get rent per square foot. And I'm asking him, I'm saying, so how are you feeling, you know? And I asked yeah. that question because I really just kind of want to take his temperature. And he said, not so good. Well, what's going on? He said, well, this isn't going to work for my investors. And my jaw dropped <laughs> on the floor. I said, your investors? What do you mean? He said, well, we're syndicating this deal. And I was like, oh, wow. man. And so when he showed me his financial model, his structure was such that it would have never if I would have just asked his structure from day one, it would have never worked for this particular property and for this wow. particular project. So we ended up losing that deal. We went out of escrow. He pulled out. We couldn't get his head wrapped around changing his structure, which I won't say because I, to this day, it's still very infuriating to me on how he can actually structure a deal that way and get the returns. But mm-hmm. anyways, long story short, uh, we lost the we lost the project and I lost the listing. So uh, a, wow. a very large uh, commission that would have been great for my brokerage. It would have been great for the seller. It would have been great for the buyer. It could have been mitigated if I would have just had some clear communication up front with that purchaser and with, with that client. So so it's like almost what I'm getting from this when working with with a broker, it's almost like you guys are like the first partner in the deal like of course you know we have investors as partners but in order to find the deal and close the deal you guys are like the first person that we partner with and you guys are filling us out as partners and we're filling you guys out as partners and then it's just like okay if if it you know if the deal works and you guys seem like you can do it then we'll go ahead and award you the deal but if the deal falls apart it's not just us that walks away and loses you know things or, or loses the deal or lose the deal you guys lose the deal as well and so like right. when you're going through the process you got to be you have to select the right person i see why you put them through put us through like such a rigorous process to make sure that you can actually perform because if you don't neither one of us gets to do a deal and nobody makes money at the end of the day exactly the seller doesn't the broker loses their time and you lose the project so i have a very high close rate only for for these reasons because I work through a lot of these objections up front. I'm certified in Franklin Covey sales training, and it always talks about never passing yellow lights. Don't push through yellow lights. And all that means is that when something comes up and it's kind of like, hmm, you know, you hear that hesitation in in your buyer's voice or the seller's voice, and you're like, and you just try to kind of brush over it. You need to go back to it. You need to bring it out on the table because it is going to come out 
before mm -hmm. that property closes. And it's better to do that up front, get that stuff taken care of and understand if this is going to work for somebody or not, than it is to be 45, 60 days into escrow. And now you've wasted 30, you know, two months on a property and you have to start the whole process over again. Right. Right. Okay. So All that's right. The third point. That's the third point. I'm interested in hearing about the fourth point. The fourth one I'm really excited about. So we've talked about having clear expectations, figuring out your track record, how you want to present yourself, clear communication. And the third one is going to be be willing to pay up front. And what I mean by that, I don't necessarily mean I need you to put dollars up up front. What I mean is I want you to pay with your time. I want you, if you're a real purchaser and you're a real client and we're looking at a five, 10, $15 million asset, I want you to spend some time up front underwriting a lot of deals with me so I can understand your criteria, how you're modeling projects, and we're getting all of our yellow lights taken up front. And I also want you to come into town. I want you to spend the time after you've identified a market and I want you to come build what I'll call your boots on the ground in the city. So just just yesterday, I had another out-of-town client flying into town. And I'm an investor, and I own property myself. And so I open my network up to my qualified investors. So I have a team here. I have property mm -hmm. managers. I have lenders. I have attorneys. I have insurance brokers. I have general contractors. You name it. I've got it for you. If you are willing to pay up front with your time through underwriting and with your in, with your time by coming into town, I'll put you up in one of our hotels. You know, hey, mm -hmm. you don't you don't have to pay for your lodging. Just come to, to town so I can show you exactly where these projects are located because you can look at all the heat maps, all of the, the demographics, all the job growth, population growth that you want. But until I get you in my Chevy Malibu and we drive around the city. And mm -hmm. we're taking a look at all these different projects and these different areas, and I'm showing you all the development and what what you need to be looking at neighborhood per neighborhood. It's not gonna it's not gonna register with you. So if somebody comes into town and I spent five, six, seven, sometimes two days with people, I have a about a 95% close rate with those individuals, then about mm -hmm. a 65, 75% close rate with somebody who's just underwriting projects sending feedback back to me and never spend the time actually coming to the market. So if you right. show good faith by actually doing that um, and, and layering in, because if you're going to go into a market, you're going to need a team anyways. And so mm -hmm. you, I'll, I'll fill both of your days up that you're here with as many meetings as you can handle. Right. I mean, we can right. start at six and not in until nine if you want, you know, I mean, good luck keeping up. Right. And so it's just like, <laughs> yeah. I need you to, spend some time, effort, energy, and there is a little bit of monetary there, I guess, with the travel. But if mm -hmm. you're seriously considering purchasing that type of asset, you can afford a, you know, a $200 a plane ticket to come to Kansas City and spend spend a day with me or my team or the rest of my service providers here actually building your network out. And if that's, you know, that kind of also segues back on to number two, how do I get in front of brokers? How do I get them to feel like I'm real? Get mm -hmm. in person with them. That's what you need to do. You need to get in person with them and show them that you're real by coming to a market. That's a really, really important piece for me. And when people do that and they say they're here and we meet up and spend valuable time together, it's it goes much farther than any type of, um, you know, what I'll say, a pre-approval from a bank, you know, a bank that I don't know out in, out in California or something like that. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. That is that is an interesting concept. And to go back to what you said, if they don't want to spend the money to come, then obviously they're not that serious about doing deals in that market anyway. Exactly. Any serious player, if you say you have a deal, they're they're driving, they're flying, however they need to get there, they're gonna get there. No matter how many how long it takes, no matter how much it costs, they're gonna find a way to get there if it's something that they honestly want to do. Yep. And and if you're serious about getting into multifamily syndication, then take your vacation days instead of going down to the beach, come to the come to the humid Midwest and let me show you the the projects that we've got here. You know, that's that's mm-hmm. that's where that's that's worth gold in broker's book. Okay. All right, you're dropping some you're dropping some some bombs now. You're dropping some great nuggets for for well, the listeners here. What I'm hoping to do is kind of get inside of a broker's mind and really try to understand how we're looking at these situations, right? Because we always have a, you know, literally when you go take a real estate test and you get your license on all of the tests, it doesn't matter what state you're in. Real estate is the time is of the essence. That is, that's where that, that mantra came from. And we are Mm -hmm. on a deadline. We are on the timeline and we have to make sure that a lot of different parties are feeling good about a very large transaction. Most of the times where they might've owned this thing for 25, 30 years, they might've built the thing and it's been their whole life. That's all they've ever known. Think about getting up and, and moving to a new city just on, on, on the whim, you know, in 90 days, Hey, you need to sell your house and you have to move. It sometimes feels that way with these owners who are 55, 65, 75. That's all they've ever known was owning property, working with their tenants. That's their job. And when they're selling that, yes, they want to do fine on the financial terms and economically they want to make sense, but emotionally they need to really, really feel good about who's taking on their project, who's going to be working with their tenants. How is, how is it going to be, you know, represented in the marketplace? All of those things come into, to effect. And if, again, a lot of sellers are present when we're, when we're touring properties, or at least we get to shake their hands, it's very important for buyers as well to potentially meet those people so they can see um, the emotional side, not just the, the what I'll call the objective side of these transactions. Right. Okay. Okay. All right. So let's 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 go over this again. So we have one set clear expectations. Two, have a investment strategy. And no, let me let me go back. One, set clear expectations. Two, yep. track record. Yep. Three, communication is key. Four, be willing to pay up front. What's the fifth one? <laughs> this one brings them all together. And this is more of what I'll, I'll call a sales process. But I would just say that if you feel, if you have any type of reservation or feel some sort of inkling that something's off, never suppress that. You know, I just got married two, two and a half years ago. And with my wife, this is, this is going to get a little bit off of real estate, but mm-hmm. with my wife, if I ever feel like something is off in our relationship, I try not to suppress it because if I do, that's just going to sit in my heart and my mind and just kind of fester. And that person, my other, you know, the other person in the relationship doesn't necessarily understand what's going on because you're not communicating that because mm-hmm. I, we're not mind readers. Even though our wives think that we might be mind readers, we're not. Yeah. Same thing with sellers and buyers. Buyers don't know what sellers 
sellers are feeling. Sellers don't know what buyers are feeling. If there's representation on both sides, what is it as a broker's job than to communicate the different feelings of both of those parties? That's exactly what we're here to do. We're here to make a good transaction, a good faith transaction. We're, we're here to, to make sure that nothing gets overlooked and everybody feels good about something and nobody really feels burnt by the end of the day. And if you don't bring those things up and you try to bring them up and retrade a $5 million property at the last minute, maybe Grant Cardone can do it. I listened to it on a podcast the other day where he did do it on like a $50 million project. That's a mm -hmm. different type of level. I would say get that up, up out up front, take care of that situation in that yellow light and get that taken care of before you move forward. If something's on your heart, something's on your mind, tell your broker, tell your representation, deal with it up front and you'll be so much better off in the long run. So that, that fifth one is just a little bit of a repeat, but it's, I think it's so important that so many agents, brokers, sellers, buyers kind of don't think about and it's that, again, that emotional side of these transactions that, you know, if, if something push comes to shove, something actually is wrong up front, you suppress that and something comes back on an inspection report. Well, you're just going to blow up because this thing was wrong at the beginning anyways. And it's mm -hmm. not that you're actually mad about the, you, you know, the HVAC system that's not working. You know, we can fix an HVAC, you know, put a new one mm -hmm. in for four grand. Like we can do that. But if that was something else was going on at, at the beginning of the transaction, then that HVAC that needs to be replaced in the end of the transaction, and we're trying to get to a, a resolution on, on something, it's going to blow up because you're harboring feelings from something else. And so it's really just making sure that you feel good, the buyer, the seller feels good, the brokers are on the same page, and everybody's moving in that common, in that same direction. Right. And I, I totally agree with you on that because, you know, we, of course we can go up and make the number some superficial number and then try to work our way back to get it to our number. But that's, that's wasting everybody's time. If it's it a is. no, it's going to be a hard no up front so that way we can move to the next deal rather than a yes. And then we got to try to work our way back to a, a strong yes. It's, right. Just you be up front. You can't fit a square peg into a round hole okay it doesn't <laughs> work i'm a strong guy and i can bowl through a lot of different things but in real estate when there's the high stakes are are at at you know at the table you cannot just try to force your way into something because it's not going to work so i agree with you so you're you're in the kansas city market um midwest kansas city right that's right yeah missouri okay so what exactly are you seeing in your market now? And I'm pretty sure you're you're aware of the market phases and everybody, you know, says that, you know, we're in the we're at the top of the phase, we're at the top of the cycle, we gotta go back sure. down. Where do you see the Kansas City market, the Midwest market right now in the grand scheme of things? Yeah, I think that Kansas City is an interesting market. We're we're a little sheltered from the coasts, right? So mm -hmm. uh, we don't have super um, really high inflated prices on a lot of different, uh, you know, projects or properties. I would say that affordability is much, you know, much more reasonable here in the Midwest. But at the same time, you know, institutional quality assets are at a premium right now. And, you know, they might trade between a five and a half and a six and a half cap rate and on an institutional style asset only because 
those institutions' cost of capital might be 4%. So they can mm-hmm. make sense of buying that 150, 250, 350 unit garden style apartment complex and make it work. Uh, so there is quite a bit of competition, I would say, on the top end of things, on the institutional style assets, where we're seeing a lot of still yields. And I, I just closed a, a nine and a half cap on a, in a great entertainment district here in Kansas City. It was mm-hmm. a commercial mixed use building. And mm-hmm. it was also in, you know, it, it took a little creativity. So I'd I like to talk about that transaction a little bit because, yes, we do a lot of multifamily, but I've also been able to have some of my more sophisticated investors and property owners look at a commercial mixed use building and say, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Where, okay. when, when I'm, be- but I mean, what I mean by that is that there's commercial property or commercial tenants on the main level, and it might be a two story building, and we have residential upstairs. You know, I own right. a couple of buildings just, just like that. And what I love about that is it allows the ability for the, the property owner and the, the owner to have some of their insurance, some of their common area maintenance, and some of their uh, property taxes taken care of by their commercial tenants. And if you do it right, you can have those commercial tenants cover your note and you can cash flow your residential units upstairs. So we're seeing a lot of, of opportunity in Kansas City where the residential market has skyrocketed. Prices have gone through the roof on on single family houses and some type of uh, multifamily uh, assets. However, the commercial properties have not kept up to speed. So if you can have a little creativity, you can have a little bit of patience. So like, for example, there were some vacancies in that building that we just closed. Well, mm-hmm. during our due diligence phase, I negotiated on our on my, my buyer's behalf. Hey, I'd like to market that property during our due diligence phase, you know, and I'm going to place a tenant in that before we close. The day right. of closing, we had we had a tenant move in. The wow. day of closing. So awesome. uh, and, and that's a win-win for the seller too, right? They had a yeah. vacant space. If we don't close, well, that's okay. We all agreed upon this tenant and the tenant's moving in. And by day one, that that property was cash flowing. We also do a lot of uh, creative things where we might have um, you know, a building that has 10, 12, 15 units, and it might be in a good area that a lot of people are visiting. Well, we might try to help the, the, the owner and say, look, in Kansas City, you can put 25% of your uh, long-term rentals as short-term rentals. And so uh, I know some really great people here in the short-term rental game, and Kansas City is still a pretty favorable market on that type of uh, business model. And I own some Airbnbs as well. And so we'll say, look, let's take, let's take one. Let's try it for a quarter. Let's see mm-hmm. how we do. And then let's maybe transition two or three more units like this that we feel that would be good. Maybe you have one one bedroom, one two bedroom. Maybe you can put a sunroom in another one and get three three bedrooms, quote unquote. You know the the mantra right. is beds and heads there for 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 the Airbnb. So, you know I think that uh, institutional quality assets have definitely um, I would say gone up as a premium. Uh, I still am closing quite a few properties in areas that are. Uh, what I'll what I'll call and Victor Minaj would call the path of progress in that mm-hmm. ten to fifty unit um, uh, market. So anywhere from five hundred thousand dollars to, you know, the five million dollars. So anywhere between forty five thousand a unit to eighty thousand dollars a unit. And uh, these are 1950, 1960, 70 unit buildings uh, that they were they were built in those those circus. And uh, it's just a little bit too small for a big player, like somebody who's going to go do a large syndication, but mm-hmm. it's a little bit too big for the regular residential real estate you know, investor who wants to kind of level up from their fourplex. They still don't feel comfortable moving up to a 20 unit building. Well, right. there's a nice little niche there that I've carved out for, for my buyers to make sure. And I've, I've built a really great team to service those types of properties. And uh, it's working out really well for us here in Kansas City. 
Okay. All right. It seems like you got a lot of things going on. And if, you know, if, if there isn't an opportunity, you're going to look at where can I, where can an opportunity be created and how can, you know, I feel that need for other people. That's what, that's the vibe that I'm getting from that. Exactly. And, you know, same thing here too, is that sometimes I might hear what a, an investor or client is asking ask for and i might be able to actually go find instead of a 50 unit apartment complex i might find i mean what i'm hearing is that hey i just want to put management in i don't want to have to deal with it okay ding 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 i hear i want ease of access i want mailbox money okay well i know this great triple net property down the street that's off market it has five-year leases in here and they're these tenants aren't going to go anywhere and they have great credit well let's go take a look at these numbers i'll put a manager in place there you just collect your 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 checks and, and you're good to go so i i might take a buyer and transition them into uh, a different type of of asset class as well Mm-hmm. And and still show them if they're not familiar with it, still, you know, kind of walk them through how it works and guide them through the process to make sure that they're they understand it and that they, you know, can still reach the same amount, achieve their goals just in a different way. Exactly. That's exactly right. OK. All right. So th- this is the part where we're going to transition. So we're going to shift it from your broker mind and change it to your investor mind. Let's do it. And we want to, can you walk us through um, your first multifamily deal and how, how you got it over the finish line and the, you know, the hurdles that you had to overcome to get the deal done? Yeah, I'm actually going to uh, talk about, um, about a 16 unit um, Airbnb, not Airbnb, bed and breakfast hotel, if that's okay. So it's, 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 it's it's multifamily. But we did a full syndication on it. So, okay, you know, I think that I think that uh, the way that we found it was very interesting. Uh, I brought it to the <laughs> I brought it to the table. Uh, I have a hotel and restaurant background, so mm-hmm. I could understand kind of uh, basically what uh, what what was going on in this bed and breakfast hotel because I've worked in those those types of establishments before. So I could mm-hmm. take a look at their you know, trailing 12 and I got five years of financial. So I was able to really dive into what was going on from an operational standpoint. And I, and I looked at the real estate and where it was located. And I said, you know, I think that the real estate alone is worth about what they're asking for, but it's not marketed to single family homeowners because, you know, it has 17 bedrooms, you know, so that's probably not going to work out. Right. You know, (laughs) so not a lot of people need 17 bedrooms. You know, there's some people here with big families, but I don't know if there's that many families. That's 17 bedrooms. Yeah. Not <laughs> so, um, so I looked at that. I dove into it. I started taking it to some of the trusted resources that I I really have here in Kansas City, and people all had the same, you know, the same kind of feedback. If you can figure out the operational piece, I think this is a home run. So I went and figured out the operational piece. So um, I, I I found management for it, and then I I found the partners that uh, had the balance sheet that I did not that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I could partner with. And I said, look, if you can handle the management of this, help me through the the process. I will raise all of the equity for my investor groups. And I will also do a lot of the front work on uh, setting up the syndication piece of it. So, you know, working with Reg D Resources and, and the guys over there, uh, Douglas Roark and, and the, their team is really great to work with on the, the syndication side. And then, and then the operating agreements with the lawyers, the subscription docs. So uh, I really did it from beginning to, to end. I mean, the last day of closing, I was running checks from one bank to the other to get this thing done. And 
no. I, what I'll tell you is that my, my biggest learning lesson was that never underestimate the time that it takes to put one of these transactions together, especially if you've done it, this is your first time, because it's so important not to be rushed through the process. And I would say at times I felt really, really rushed and my investors, they felt rushed too, but I have such a pre-existing great relationship with them that they stuck through that with me. And, and so we've done two of those working on our third one now on that front. And those investors have stayed with us through that process. But I think the, I think that you should own a lot of the process that first time yourself. So that second time that you do it, third time, fourth time, you can go start to build a team that can handle the items that you might not be uh, the best at, right? So for me, I'm not super good at details and working with lawyers on operating agreements and redlining documents. And mm -hmm. so I'll hire an executive admin or have my executive admin help me with that next time. And I won't have to worry about that piece of it. Now, I have to make myself available to the investors and answer all of the questions. Mm -hmm. Yes, but not not necessarily actually, you know, combining the documents and, and making sure that the lawyers are all on the same page. Right. So um, but that first one, I would say you probably should do just about everything. So you have exposure. I never like delegating something until I've done it so I can really mm -hmm. empathize with the person that's doing it. So right. that'd probably be my biggest takeaway from that, that, uh, that first one that we've, we've completed. Okay. And I, I agree with you on that. Uh, never, you know, it's kind of like that. I'll never ask you to do anything that I've never done or wouldn't do myself. And so right. that way, you know, it's always, it's not like you're the boss pointing, like you're in the front, just pointing, you know, fingers at where we're going. Like you're actually like showing these people like, Hey, can you do this? I understand the process. I know how much work it takes, but I really need you to do it. And then they, you know, they kind of understand because if they understand that you've done it and you've been in the same situation, then they're more willing to work with you and do it, you know, for you rather than you never doing it before or never done it before and don't even even understand how the process works. And then exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So two more questions here. We're going to dive into this first one. Which is, will do you think we're going a little bit into the future where Airbnb? Because you spoke about Airbnb on here. Yeah. So, do you ever think, do you ever see like a multifamily apartment going full Airbnb? Oh man, put me on the spot. So, uh, no, I, okay. I do not. I, I do not. And, and here's why you, you know, a lot of municipalities are very strict on Airbnb uh, regulations and, and restrictions. And so I would never put a business plan or model in the, in the hands of another individual, right? I want to be able to control that. And so if somebody can tell me that, you know, I can't do something later down the road because they can vote on it. I want to avoid that. So just mm -hmm. look in case in point, look at what's happening in Nashville, right? I mean, they're, they're really kind of getting strict on the short-term rentals over there. And I'm not sure if they're going to have a short-term rental business there in a few years. I think that they've, if you get grandfathered in, that's great. But, you know, I was at a bachelor party down in Nashville and they clearly built a single family home for you know three or four stories i can't remember what it was full mm -hmm. of bedrooms directly for airbnb or short-term rental and i'm like okay well what happens when it gets out well what do you do with that property you can't right. make that work you can't sell that no 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 you know no 
you know, single owner is going to want a, a house with eight bedrooms and three floors and five balconies and, mm-hmm. and all this stuff. I mean, maybe they will, but I, I highly doubt it. Um, so I would say probably not. What I've been seeing is that uh, some of the larger hotel operators are getting into uh, shorter term rental kind of what I'll say uh, place. Right. And then mm-hmm. also uh airbnb actually buying hotels themselves so i think that's going to happen way quicker than an apartment complex that would go uh full airbnb okay okay and then the next question is if you could tell your younger self something what would you tell your younger self from what you learned so far yeah i would say be quick but don't hurry slow down to go fast and be patient This is a get rich, slow process. Build the foundation, read a lot of books, and really, really put yourself around good, good people and treat people with honesty, authenticity, and respect. That was that would what I would I would say. And it's really goes back to being patient to my younger self. That's so tough to do though. That patience, the patience thing is really the tough part. Because it's that, just it, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. That is tough. Okay. So how can people connect with you? How can people, you know, reach out to you to find out more about what's going on in the Kansas City market? How can they, you know, reach out to you for investing? How can they just connect with you all over? I'm all over the social medias and everything's at live free investments. You can reach me at live free investments. Dot com Logan Freeman on LinkedIn. I'm very active there. Uh, at mm-hmm. Instagram is at Live Free Investments and, and LiveFreeInvestments.com. If you reach out to me there, my team will get me uh, the email and say that I need to get somebody called. Uh, you could schedule some time with me on that calendar as well. Perfect. 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 Well, Mr. Logan, I thank you for coming on the Multifamily Mondays podcast. And you have dropped a whole lot of golden nuggets and drop heavy bombs on the audience. So I appreciate it. Well, I am, I was very much appreciate. I very much appreciated being with you today. And and I hope your listeners have gained some insights and if they have any questions, I love meeting people just like yourself. And I'd love to help because Zig Ziglar once said, if you help enough other people get what they want in life, you're ultimately going to get what you want. And I fully believe that. Perfect. Here are some action steps. If you haven't done so yet, make sure you rate, subscribe, and leave a review of this podcast. And the reason this is important, because I want your feedback. I want to make it better. If you can leave a five-star review, awesome. If you have to leave a one-star review, that's awesome too. But at least I know how you're feeling, and at least I know how to get better at it. So make sure you rate, subscribe, and review. Leave a review for this podcast. And if you haven't done so yet, make sure you get into the brand new Multifamily Mondays podcast group on facebook just go to facebook type in multifamily mondays podcast and you will see the group make sure you join and connect with your fellow multifamily mondayers and follow us on instagram at multifamily mondays and if you haven't done so yet make sure you follow my personal page that's roderick moneyman jones that's r-o-d-d-r-i-c-k moneyman jones on instagram And remember, it may be Tuesday, it may be Thursday, and it may be Friday, but it's always 
Multifamily Mondays. I'll see you on the next episode.